the Oakdale Christian Centre podcast. This week, John McKay and Joseph Hubbard from Creation Research have been visiting us. In this session, they lead a Bible study into created by and for him. To find out more about John and Joseph's work, visit www.creationresearch.net. We thank John and Joseph for allowing us to record these sessions. It's good to have Joseph and John with us. Um, we we appreciate John. We've had him. It's like I guess it's ten years since he was here first. It's gone, gone very quickly, and uh, he's been a blessing. And he is. Uh, we say people are a gift gift from God to the body of Christ. He certainly is, because where we see something, he sees it clearly and with a great uh, thinking cl- clarity of mind. So we appreciate that he's got a young man, his uh, apprentice uh, Joseph coming alongside, uh, so he can pass on the the baton when and if. Bless the Lord. So Joseph's going to start. Bless you, Joseph. Thank you very much, Dave. Um, so yeah, I took the bulk of the teaching uh, yesterday, and John sort of gave you the little introduction, and so today it's my turn. I'm going to give you the introduction, a little bit of a report, sort of introduce the evening, and then I'll hand over to John for the main subject of this evening. Um, what am I going to be introducing? Well, let's start with this place the Genesis Museum of Creation Research. You see, what I want to do this evening is not just open the uh, evening and uh, you know, begin to open the teaching for you, but I also want to give you a bit of an update uh, as to what's been going on in the last couple of years. Because if I recall correctly, uh, me and John were last here in 2017, and quite a bit has happened since then. And uh, the first time, as Dave said, John's been coming here for 10 years or so now, um, the first time I was here was in 2015. And we even have some pictures of me looking a little bit younger back in 2015 coming up, because uh, that was the first year I came here and spent some time with you all, and it was also the first year I started visiting your beaches around here, and actually doing some of that same fossil hunting, um, actually in the same place that uh, Dave and John went earlier. Okay, Genesis Museum of Creation Research. It's part of our Creation Research Museums project that we started around the UK. I set this up, uh, the, the first sort of bits of it started coming together back in 2012, uh, or I merged with Creation Research in 2014, and the collection just continued to grow. And you see, in all of our museums, we have three main aims. Um, The first one is creation. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the Sabbath day. You see, this is from a very famous part of the Bible that most people have certainly heard of, the Ten Commandments. And most people don't realize that there are many other books in the Bible that reference the six days of creation. It's not just in Genesis. It even talks about it in the law. Um, and it's also the only uh, sort of, you know, part of the ten, one of the Ten Commandments that God actually gives a reason for why he, uh, you know, has given us that law. All the other ones, he just says, you know, do not lie, do not steal, do not murder. But here he's actually giving us a reason. You will keep the Sabbath day because it is holy. Why is it holy? Because in six days I made the heavens and the earth, and on the Sabbath day, on the seventh day, I rested. So that's the first aim of our museum, is to proclaim Jesus Christ as the creator. The second one is the flood. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days, and the waters increased and lifted up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. 
and all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered, and all flesh died that moves on the face of the earth, birds, cattle, beasts, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and every man. You see, yes, I truly do believe in a worldwide flood, and I truly do believe it was a direct result of man's sin. You see, not only is God the creator, he is also our judge. Um, and I love going out and digging fossils. I wasn't able to join uh, Dave and John today. I've sort of uh, right in the middle of finishing up some final bits of study. And it's uh, my tutor sent a very helpful email to me a couple of days ago saying uh, the good old quote, if it wasn't for the last minute, then nothing would get done. And it, <laughs> it really is quite true. Um, so uh, sort of, uh, I had to stay at home and you know, catch up on that. But um, I love going out and digging fossils. I've been out uh, all over the world now digging up these fossils. And the one thing that I know, having gone out and dug plenty of fossils up and been under the instruction of John who's been digging up fossils for quite a lot longer than I have they really do cry out uh, that Jesus Christ is not only the creator but also the judge and that he did judge the world in a worldwide flood and our third and uh, the most important aim of our museums to proclaim who Jesus Christ actually is. Because he is our creator, he is our judge, but he's also our saviour. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same, in the, was, the same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we're told a lot of information about God, but then it tells us who this God actually is. The world became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ, the Word, dwelt among us and died for our sins. There are main points that we try and get across in all our museums. It's not just about creation. It's not just about the flood. We want to proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. So let's show you the museum. Uh, the one that we currently have uh, over in Norfolk, the Genesis Museum of Creation Research. Um, we have 3,000 fossils on display in there, uh, plus uh, some exhibits on archaeology and some ones on uh, natural history and things like that. Um, it is quite crammed. It's uh, sort of overflowing. We sort of ran out of room quite a long while ago and have sort of, you know, when, when visitors come, we have to kind of take them around and give them a guided tour because there's no room for any signs or anything else like that. Uh, and we have uh, quite a lot of the, uh, you know, the displays and stuff that we've collected in storage, um, which is why we're trying to develop some new museum projects. But we like to take people around. We've got your, you know, your living things. You can see down the bottom there. We've even got some uh, living animals. You see, I mentioned yesterday that I worked as a zookeeper for a few years, and quite often we would have animals donated to us, um, which was wonderful, because it meant we could bring them back and put them on display. And now then, when people come around to visit our museums, we don't just have the dead creatures, we actually have some living ones for you to be able to come and see as well. Uh, it's not just, you know, uh, you know, your fossils and your living things as well. We also have a big emphasis on biblical archaeology. Um, that's not the archaeology of the Bible, by the way. There's plenty of resources on that. Biblical archaeology is the entire study of archaeology from the worldview point of the Bible. Whatever nation you are, whatever you know, pottery or coins or whatever you dig up, the one thing the Bible teaches is that not only do you all go back to Adam, you all go back to Noah and his three sons. And it really is remarkable the amount of archaeological evidence that you can find for that. So we have lots of displays 
way, way, way more uh, than we've got room for. So, like I say, most of them are in storage. And we've got a very exciting piece of news that is coming up. But let's bring you back to home. Um, You see, I first visited uh, your church, like I said, I think it was 2015, which would have been uh, a few few years back. And uh, we went for a fossil hunting trip to the same place that Dave and John went earlier, to a place called Southern Down. Um, Some great fossils there. Can you see all the layers? Yeah, geologists love layers. Um, We love to go and digging through them. Okay, what did we find? Well, there I am, a few years back. Um, What am I pointing at down there? It's a little seashell. Can you see the two halves closed? You see, you instantly know what that is. It's a little clamshell. Um, And you know it's a clamshell because it looks like a clamshell. So the first thing you can tell about that is that in the nearly 200 million years that that was supposedly been sitting there, clamshells have turned into clamshells. There is no evolution in the rocks at all. But can you see that funny sort of brown thing up the top there? You see, that is actually a land plant. It's a piece of fossil wood. In fact, it's so well preserved, we can even tell you exactly what kind of wood that is. It's oricaria, the southern pines, the, uh, we know them as the monkey puzzle trees. It's the same thing. It's so brilliantly preserved, we can tell you what kind of plant it is. But the real interesting thing about this is the fact that you've got a seashell and a plant buried next to each other. You see, my uh, academic subject at university was paleobiology. I had to go out and dig up fossils, and I was taught that you dig up fossils, and using those fossils, you can create ecosystems. You can work out how those creatures lived by their fossils. And there are two big problems with that. First one, the fossil record is a record of death, not of life. Those things are no longer living, they are dead, they are buried. You can work out a lot about how they died. You can tell very little about how they lived. Um, And the second biggest problem with trying to do that, trying to, you know, build up ecosystems and habitats, uh, is that it simply never works. Uh, Because you find things like this everywhere. Seashells and plants buried next to each other. Dinosaurs and fish buried next to each other. It does not make sense. And you know one thing is that whenever you get land plants or land creatures buried next to sea creatures, you have got a marvellous evidence of a flood. A huge flood that has washed over the land, bringing the sea creatures up onto the land, washing all of the you know, land plants and land animals together and dumping them down very quickly in those layers. Um, of course, not to be outdone, John had to go and uh, find his own fossil. He started digging away at this. Can you see the bit of fossil wood up the top? Can you see the little seashell down next to it? Yeah, we see we still have these uh, seashells alive today. It's again, it's another one of the bivalves. It's uh, very similar to our modern oyster shells. Things just do not change. Um, There's no evolution in the rocks whatsoever. So John started chipping away at that to try and get that little fossil out and he ended up revealing this. Can you see the big curly-whirly fossil? The great big ammonite? Yeah. Ah, oh, ammonite, it's buried next to this, uh, the fossil wood. Land plant and sea creature together. Definite evidence of a flood. Of course, I... Yeah, it's in this church. It's, it's 
about here, I think. Yeah, we we actually, um, if I remember correctly, we well, we obviously brought it in, but I think we brought it in with a few of our other finds and set it up on display for people to come and see. Um, oh, I won in the end, by the way, between me and John, because I actually have that back in the museum now, so it's it's now mine. <laughs> I took custody of it because uh, uh, it was slightly more heavier than they'd allow on Australian international flights. Um, <laughs> but you see, this is not a one-off occasion. You find these everywhere. Uh, we've visited that site uh, two or three times now, and we've come back. In fact, you came back today with some fossil wood, and it was next to seashells. It really is. Everywhere you go, you find these sea creatures and land plants mixed together. Marvelous evidence of a flood. But there's one more piece of the evidence that you can find. Because uh, one of the stories that the, you know, the academics, the secularists try and explain to get around this problem is they say, oh, it's fine. What happened was the trees were growing near the edge of the sea or near the edge of a stream or a river. And you see the wood fell down and it fell into the river and it got swept out to sea and it was floating around for ages until it got waterlogged and then it began to sink. And that's how it got buried. Well, it really doesn't actually match up either. Can you see the lovely straight edges on the corner of this wood? You see, uh, if you like, you know, the sort of the spy and detective movies, you'll know that when they're sort of, you know, they found the dead body, they're trying to work out how long it's been dead for, they can tell pretty well, you know, they can get a good idea of how long it's been dead, bo uh, sorry, dead for by um, how decayed that body is, how far down the worms have got, how, uh, you know, rotted it is. It's the same for plants as well. They rot very, very quickly. They get destroyed very, very easily. And if you ever go walking down on a beach and you find you know, bits of uh, sticks and twigs that have been floating around for ages, you know that the edges of their bark tends to go fluffy and sort of begin to decay. You see, again, that's not what you find in the fossil record. These lovely straight edges are marvelous evidence that it's been buried very, very quickly and rapidly washed in next to these sea creatures. Okay, so these are just, yeah, you know, these are some of the uh, examples of evidence that we uh, collect when we go around all over the place on these research trips, collecting them and bringing them back to our museums. But occasionally, we will have fossils donated to us as well. And we had a spectacular fossil donated to us just last year. You see, about six years ago, I was uh, going from you know, shop to shop, as I do, like to have a look at, you know, some of the fossils that are on display in some of these big sort of fossil auction shops. And uh, I came across a marvellous fossil. And I thought that'd be lovely to have. Unfortunately, it was slightly out of my budget by a few thousand pounds. So uh, I said to the guy, I said, can I, um, you know, can I take this fossil out? Can I take some photographs of it? I'd like to use it in some of my talks. And so he said, yeah, absolutely, go ahead. So I did. Um, I started using it in some of my talks, and uh, it's a wonderful fossil. And uh, I was up in uh, Manchester a couple of years back giving a talk, and I used this fossil as an example. And uh, I had a, one of our supporters approach me afterwards and say, I would like to try and raise enough funds to be able to purchase that fossil for your ministry. And I was like, by all means, go ahead. You know, he didn't really think it was going to happen uh, until he rang me up about six months later and said, we've managed to raise the funds. I've bought the fossil. It's here. When can you come and collect it? Wow. The fossil in question? This one. Yeah, it's a spectacular example of a fossil. Can you see all the detail? Oh, can you see, uh, can you see big fish? Can you see little fish? Can you see how little fish is coming out of big fish's mouth? Yeah, wonderful detail. How do we know it's been buried fast? 
Well, you see, uh, if you want to get such stunning detail, you see the standard story of fish, or fish fossilization is that a fish is swimming in the sea, it dies. It sinks to the bottom of the sea, and it slowly gets buried. Of course, the first biggest problem with that is that the majority of fish do not sink when they die. They float. They have uh, swim bladders, which are like air bladders inside of them, which when they die, they've got nothing controlling them, so they bloat and they float. Uh, there are some fish who can sink, but they are destroyed very quickly. Uh, there are things like fungus, which exist on the bottom of the sea, that come up and completely destroy it. They don't hang around for a very long time. You need to bury it very, very quickly if you want to make a fossil. It's got everything to do with a process and nothing to do with time whatsoever. If you take a long time to try and make a fossil, your creature will be destroyed long before you ever have a chance to uh, fossilize it. Okay, what else can we learn about this? Um, can you see the teeth marks in little fish? Let's put some arrows on them for you. Can you see them now? Little dent, little dent, little dent. You see, when I first came across this fish fossil, I thought that this big fish was in the middle of eating little fish. It turns out it's not quite the whole story because, you see, little fish has previously been eaten. He's got teeth marks running through him. He hasn't been eaten for very long, because he's still pretty fresh-looking. Um, but what seems to have happened is Big Fish has eaten Little Fish. Munch, munch, munch. And then all of a sudden, Big Fish has got caught up so suddenly and so violently, he's been squashed. And Little Fish, inside of Big Fish, has gone, what? It's come out. It's been forced out of its stomach under great pressure. It's been buried really quickly. But again, this example is not unique. This is some of our fossil fish that we have on display in our museum in Australia. Um, what's going on up here? Blow it up a little bit. Um, can you see big fish? Can you see little fish? You see big fish and little fish here are exactly the same as uh, the one we have on display in the museum in the UK. The only difference is that little fish here is slightly more digested. Um, yeah, this is fossil vomit. Uh, it's not very nice to think about, but it does make a point very, very clearly. Big fish has been caught up and squashed so suddenly and so violently, the contents of his stomach has been forced out and then preserved before that vomit can float away. It's been trapped in sediment and fossilized extremely quickly. Nothing to do with time, everything to do with the process. Because, you see, I love to take people out on fossil trips. Um, maybe we can have a fossil field trip here sometimes. Because we love to take people out. We love to show people the real evidence, the hands-on evidence. And we get to collect lots of things for our museums as well. And I mentioned earlier that we have lots of stuff ready to go on display. That we've got nowhere to put it. We just, you know, have to stack it up all in storage. Okay? Enter the Creation Research UK Museums project. Um... Creation Discovery Centre, Wales. Yes, we have a new church in Haverford West, um, which has been long-time supporters, and they've started building a new church, a new church building. And they have promised us uh, a good chunk of their top floor to be able to be a brand new Creation Research Discovery Centre museum. Um, there's Pastor Adrian 
from uh, Calvary Church in Haverford West. Uh, we're going down there um, tomorrow, actually. We're going to go down and spend some time with them. And one of the things that they want us to do on this trip is actually spend some time having a look at their new building and actually working out how we're going to set it up and what kind of displays we're going to put there. So we're really excited because we can actually get some of these fossils and displays actually out there on display so that people can come and see things and see things hands-on, real evidence, not just pretty pictures and videos, but actual hands hands-on evidence and display. And you see, it's this hands-on approach that uh, is one of the big reasons why I will be always grateful to the Lord that he put me and John together. Because I love that hands-on stuff. And it's a very, very uh, brilliant way of being able to get the message across. Which is why I'm very grateful about this project. The Rocks Cry Out. Um, there's the team up there. They're actually here with us tonight. Uh, <laughs> they're not too pleased that I've just pointed them out, but never mind. <laughs> But uh, you see, this is, I mentioned this briefly last night, it's a brand new series. Um, we've produced the first book, it's available downstairs. The second book has just arrived. I have confirmation from uh, Calvary Church that he um, announced that it had arrived this afternoon. It'll be going out on display uh, tomorrow when we go down there to set up. It's a series, it's about 10-15 minute uh, video mini documentary on site showing you all the evidence, which is free to watch. And then there's the field guide next to it, which has got maps and it's got your, you know, all your practical details, the things that you really want to know. Where do I park? Are there toilets? Do I, you know, where can I get some food to eat while I'm there? And then it takes you step by step through all of the geology and then an in-depth section at the back going a little bit deeper into the science and the geology of the site, designed so that you can actually take yourself and basically have your own field trip there. Um, you don't need to be brainwashed by all of the lies of millions of years in evolution, but you can understand the truth that the rocks cry out the creator or the praises of their creator. Um, the first book is downstairs. I'd encourage you to go and look at it. Uh, the Valley of Lime up in Derbyshire. The uh, second book, which is just arriving, is at a place called Aberythe Bay, which is down in uh, Pembrokeshire, down near the St. David's area. And the third book, which is uh, currently being written, is for Hunstanton Cliffs. And we have our plans in place to produce uh, another three locations in the next year. So do keep an eye out about that. Uh, and you can visit therockscryout.co.uk. It's got all the information up on there. Okay. How can you support these projects and the work that we're doing? Um, last point before I hand back to John. Uh, well, the most important way is prayer. Uh, this is a real, a real battle that is going on here. Uh, there's a lot of uh, challenges that come up all the time. I've uh, taken a step of faith in the last couple of months and moved into full time with creation research. I left my uh, job as a zookeeper, um, you know, finishing up university, doing those last little bits, and then I will be completely immersed, immersed in ministry for the next uh, few years. So please do pray. There's got a lot of uh, work that still needs to be done. Spread the word about, let people know about uh, what's going on, about the projects that we're doing, the new museums and all the interesting things that we've got going on. Invite others to use creation research as a resource. There's so many brand new materials. In fact, uh, most of the resources downstairs are all brand new this year. Uh, some of them have literally only arrived in the UK in the last few weeks. So uh, do let others know about the resource. Um, there's plenty of ways that you can get involved practically with help. We're always looking for as much help as we can. So try, do try and get involved. And obviously all of these things, the research, the museums, the setting up, all of that stuff does cost a lot of money. So for 
financial gifts are also greatly appreciated. And I'm back to you, John, uh, to finish the rest of the teaching. Thank you, Joseph. Yes, I still have my stuffed up head, so keep praying for that. I'm slowly and marginally improving um, from last Tuesday to uh, today as a uh, it's been a nice little increase. So now if I was to ask you to open your Bible to the first book of Revelation, uh, where would you go? Revelation. Actually, that's the last book of Revelation. You see, the first book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, says, In the beginning God created. And I said it deliberately that way because, you see, when you read through the record of creation, which the museums here are dedicated to showing you is true in biology and uh, in, in geology, etc., you have to say, how on earth do we know what happened until the human being was here? Adam couldn't have deduced anything about the first five and a bit days. He wasn't there. Moses didn't know any of it because he didn't come along till much later. So Genesis chapter 1 has to be a revelation at least up until Adam was made out of the dust of the ground. Okay, can you imagine being an angel? Because the Bible says all the sons of God rejoiced at the creation. And chief angel reports back to his colleagues. What would he say? I saw a new heavens and I saw a new earth. Uh, is that anywhere else in the Bible, by the way? It's in the last book of the Bible. Now, what I'm going to try and do in the brief time that we have left tonight, before we give you a chance to ask questions, is try and tie the dots from the first book of Revelation to the last book of Revelation. This will be the fastest Bible study from one end to the other that you've probably ever made. But we're not going to cover every verse, so don't worry about it. We are going to remind you that the New Testament is emphatic that Jesus Christ is the Creator. I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with John's gospel like, uh, like uh, we just did before or whether you deal with Paul in Colossians. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and earth. And he goes on to tell you who did this. This person is the head of the church and he's not referring to the current pope. The whole chapter is about Jesus Christ. Um, John's gospel all the way through to the book of Revelation including what John writes in Revelation, is about who the Creator is. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, the first book of Revelation. If you want a little bit of in-depth study, think carefully. The first three or four words, in the beginning God created. Now, I was in India a couple of years back, and there was the headlines. It says, God of cricket retires. And us Australians went, phew, we couldn't win the cricket when Sachin Tendula was the captain at all. We were glad he retired. But hang on, is he a god? You see, god in English is actually borrowed from Sanskrit, and in Sanskrit it just means the top person, the best cricket player. In fact, you still use it that way. Some people make a god out of money. It's the top thing in their life, Right? Uh, fame is your God. Hmm. Do you remember when uh, the big explosion occurred at the Manchester football stadium there with the young people at the big, big concert? And they filmed it. And the commonest statement you heard was, oh, my God. Wonder who they were talking about. Or were they just talking about what 
or something? Or didn't they know who they were talking about? Genesis 1 says, in the beginning, God. And I have to tell you this because most Christians think God is a name. No, it's not. Not in Hebrew, not in Sanskrit, nor in English. It's a position. If I was to tell you king, you'd need to say King Henry, King George, King Charles. Hopefully not, maybe. Um, okay. The Bible actually tells you that the God in Genesis 1 is the top being, but you don't know anything more about him than that he's the top being. Or you do know it's he because Hebrew does something that English doesn't do. In the beginning, God created, and the verb and the noun are tied together, and the verb is masculine. So you know this God is masculine. It's not a she-god. It's not Vishnu or some of these female gods. It's not Diana of the Greeks, right? This is a masculine God. And if you like Hebrew, it's Elohim. And the I am bit is plural. So there's two, maybe three at least, things involved in what's going on here. By the time you get to John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. Verse 14, the word became flesh. Chapter 2, Jesus is walking among us, turning water into wine. Hmm. By the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus is the name of this God. Oh, now, don't hear me wrong. It's not that Jesus is only God. Uh, don't you know things like God as Father, God as Son, God as Holy Spirit? Don't hear me wrong. Um, that is very real. But you see, God is not a name. God is a position. When you get to the last book of Revelation, no prizes. Um, anyone remember how it starts? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, and when I first became a Christian, the New Zealanders, a group over there, had begun to introduce what are called scripture choruses. And one of the first I ever learned and, of course, it was in King James because King James sets to music very well. And uh, I'd grown up with Shakespeare at school, so it didn't worry me too much. And chapter 4, verse 11, thou art worthy, thou art worthy. Isn't, you know the rest of it? Thou art worthy, O Lord, for thou hast created. And the whole book is about Jesus Christ. We know that because in chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, thou art the lamb who was slain. Ah, Jesus Christ's revelation, this is the creator, this is the saviour. By the time you get to chapter 21, verse 1, well, I think you probably should know it. Um, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Exactly the same report the chief angel would have brought back on the first creation. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no more sea. I'm sorry, all you surf lovers. That's it. Uh, you'll probably have lots better things to do than just go surfing off Cornwall, but in reality, there was no more sea. And he showed me a pure river of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb, and the middle of a street and on either side of the river was the tree of life. Now, by the way, which is the first book in the Bible you read the tree of life in? Genesis. Because God made the tree of life, and he set it up there as a test for Adam and Eve. And then in the last part of this, there'll be no more curse. Now, do you know something I've noticed? There are many churches that avoid Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3, right up to chapter 12. They're happy to start with Abraham, but they skip all the preceding history. 
And I've noticed there's a very big correlation between the people who skipped the first 12 chapters and the people who skipped the last 22. Because the book of Revelation is absolutely dependent on you knowing the real history of the world back in Genesis. Uh, summarize it for you. Genesis 1, a good God made a good man. Genesis 3, whoops, I need three fingers up for that. The good man sinned against the good God. And the world is no longer very good. John 1, the good God became a good man. John 3, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. You know one thing? If you don't have Genesis 1, 2 and 3, then John 1, 2 and 3 makes no sense whatsoever. You know, in our modern world here in England, have you realized that there are two major attacks happening on Scripture? One's happening on the creator. It's called atheistic evolution, humanism, Darwinism, Dawkinsism, the BBC, right? David Attenborough, etc. And the other is Islam. Who is Jesus? And the two are tied together. Oh, the connection? Um, you know, the Bible says God is Yahweh. Yahweh becomes Jesus in the flesh. Yahweh has a son. His son is Jesus. And the Quran says Allah has no son. Question. The Christians who say, oh, the Muslims serve the same God as the Christians, as Abraham did in the Old Testament. Sorry. Question. If Allah is not God and he says he created and he has no son and the real creator actually is the son of God. Hmm. Do you realize that makes Allah a liar? And it makes Allah a liar from the very beginning. And in fact, Islam is attacking everything from Genesis right through to John. And most Christians in the West are ignoring it. We're going to try and get to this stage. How long do you think this Jesus will take to remake the heavens and the earth? Because Genesis 1 says he took six days. Exodus 20 says he took six days. In the book of Revelation, he's going to remake the heavens and the earth. Let's try and join the dots. To do so, we're going to take you to Australia, take you to Jurassic Ark. We put up the history of the world in murals. Don't you love Genesis 1 and 2? You know, I said to the artists who did this, oh, why would we do it? Do you realise many young people today can flick through their phone and find Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 12? Just like that. They have no idea where Ezekiel's in the Bible. No idea which part of the history. Um, it's different than when you flick it through and try and find it. So they don't know whether Ezekiel's at the start or at the end or in the middle or whatever. Um, many people don't even read the Bible. In fact, it's almost like the medieval times where they had to put the Bible in pictures on the windows because the people couldn't read. Uh, don't you love that pretty Eve? Surprisingly, she looks remarkably like the artist's wife. I don't know what he was trying to say, but uh, there he is down. Oh, oh, do you see the dinosaurs here? I said to the artist, be provocative. We go through Genesis 3, one of the most important chapters in the whole of the book of Genesis. Eve is tempted. Adam sins. We, oh, that's the most popular mural in the park, by the way, particularly with the high school young men. I want one of those on a T-shirt. There were giants in the land. See them? Oh, you've never thought of giants being animals too? Because many reptiles, talk to him, he's a zookeeper. The older a reptile gets, the bigger it gets. And by the time you get to Noah, nearly 1,600 years have gone past since creation. So there's going to be some big animals around as well as some of the giant people are being referred to. 
And don't the kids love the big things? I mean, back at Jurassic Park, Dad, can I touch the dinosaurs? No, stay away from them. And that actually happened. I heard the father say, don't do that. It was too late. Oh, and you know something? Uh, in the beginning of the word, we're made in the image of God. We're made in the image of the word. And have you noticed how we're using words now to turn things on and turn things off? Because God created by the power of his word. He commanded the earth to bring forth plants. Hmm. Um, I said to our tech guys, I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have dinosaurs that would just appear? And now we do. Switch on. Look at this. Hey, wow. Then you can switch it off and it disappears. Interactive technology is amazing. Look at the looks on these girls' faces. It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, that's only happened this year. But you know something? That's uh, a virtual reality. But the real dinosaurs are gone. The pterodactyls are gone. The saber-toothed tigers are gone. And all you know of in your whole history is things have been disappearing. Put all that together. You see, God created. This God turns out to be Jesus Christ. He made everything very good. Don't be surprised. It reflects his nature. The verse that Pastor Dave read told us he put his nature in creation. The world was good because he's good. He made each creature after its kind. They don't evolve because he never changes. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. All you'll ever see is different aspects of his same character. Same as you'll see red carrots and purple carrots and white carrots and short ones and big ones and fat ones. Remember last night we introduced you to the Fox TV report on why young people are leaving the church in America and abandoning Christianity and end up believing nothing? Not becoming atheist, not becoming agnostic, not moving to mysticism, not becoming you know, Hindus or anything like that. They're believing nothing because if evolution is true, there's nothing to believe. If you teach them in England since the 1850s that God didn't actually create, and that's where your government is, that's where your education department is, that's where the kindergarten is, that's why we introduced all of these things, you know, for the little kids, so they can know for sure God created um, you teach them that, they won't be able to believe that. Um, have you ever noticed when you read your Bible, some books in particular are very tightly argued like Romans? I mean, Romans chapter 6 and 7 and 8, have you got your head around all that? I haven't. How about the book of Revelation? Can you tie every bit together? How about Daniel? Hey, some of these books are really interesting, but man, are they tight. You don't believe the first Adam, you won't believe the last Adam because they're all connected together and you teach people a different history of the world, then watch out, they will abandon the correct future as well. Okay, in the beginning God created. He made the world very good. All creatures were vegetarian, including the snakes that Joseph talked about last night. Yes, they could swallow big marsupials today, but big watermelons would have needed exactly the same technology as having that avoidance. You know, you saw that little air pipe that went through? You would have needed exactly the same. Question, was Adam gay? You sort of smile. No, if Adam was gay, we wouldn't be here talking about it, correct? Yeah. Um, it's not a silly statement anymore because the BBC, Songs of Praise, had two gay men from the United Reformed Church kissing on Songs of Praise just last week assuming it's normal. And they say the Bible is evolving. Well, funny thing, I, since I became a Christian, 
doesn't matter what version or that I've got, it seems to say the same thing. In six days, God created. And homosexuality is an abomination because he made them male and female. <gasps> Man, I can get into trouble for this. Yes, I can. You know, I came into England one year and uh, the customs officer looked at my passport, looked at me. Praise God, my dad was a Scotsman. Praise God, I've got a British passport because they said to me, if you didn't have a passport, we'd put you back on the plane and send you back to Australia. Why? Because I'm known to preach against homosexuality. I'm known to preach that it's a sin. Sheesh. Adam wasn't gay. Trouble is, here's where gay started. When you turn away from God and abandon his right to tell you what's wrong, then things go downhill. Man sinned, the world went from good to bad, and this is degeneration or devolution. You say, why did I tell you that? All right, what was our verse again? We started at Genesis 1, and then we reminded you about Colossians. And some of you already know that the Bible says Christ was sacrificed before the foundation of the world. I mean, if you ever struggled as, why did God bother to create us when he knew he'd turn out like Pastor Dave? Or me, right? Or you and you've actually been nasty to your sister. Why did he bother creating us if he knew this was going to happen? Well, for by him and for him, all things were made. In fact, not only is Jesus the creator, look what it says. Everything was created by him and for him. And if you struggle with that, let's check you out. On the first day of the week, didn't Jesus rise from the dead? Yes, he did. John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. I mean, think about it. In the beginning was the Word, and by the time you get to verse 5, it says, and the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And there's no doubt about it, the Holy Spirit is taking Genesis 1 and stitching it together in a different way to give you a picture of Jesus in John 1. In the beginning, God. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. And Do you realise how many verses it's taken to get through the first four words of Genesis? You are getting an expanded version, so you can't miss it. All things were made by him. And on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. And the Apostle Paul said... For God, who commanded the light to shine, has shone in our hearts the light of the glory of God through the face of Jesus Christ. Hey, what are you doing here tonight? Never thought about what God did on the third day? This God, who is Jesus, who created all things, and they were made by him and for him, on the third day of the week, and God commanded the earth to bring forth plants. Now, I'll be honest, we can make virtual plants, but you try eating them and you die of hunger. Um, he commanded the earth and it brought forth real plants. Think carefully. On the third day, day three of creation, do you realise, as I said last night, he created trees? And when your Bible says he was sacrificed before the foundation of the world, do you realise he created trees knowing he'd hang on one? Hmm. And in fact, didn't he create the grains? Yes. He created all the herbs and the plants and the seeds so that you could have food. Because that's what Adam has told. I've made all of these green things. I've made all the seeds. I've made all of the fruits for you to eat. Okay, we take the grains, we make flour. From flour we make bread, either yeasty bread or non-yeasty bread. And didn't he break the bread and said, this is my body 
given for you? Or have you never tied all the dots together to realise just how great this Jesus is? Hmm. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in the past to our fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he's appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. Do you realise the book of Hebrews is written to Hebrew thinkers, to Jews who are thinking of abandoning Christ? And its whole theme is, hey, don't do this. Jesus Christ is God. He's not just from God. Um, we have trouble saying this. While I'm speaking a bit, try and fill in the dots just there. Because, you see, I was in a Baptist church giving this message as soon as it dawned on me back in Australia quite a while ago, and I was talking about how Jesus is God, the creator. And, and some of the deacons came to me afterwards and said, young man, I told you it was a while ago, young man, you've got it wrong. God is the creator. Jesus is the saviour. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses are quite happy with that. The Muslims are quite happy with that. And the God who created isn't because Jesus is God. Now, God is father. God is son. God is Holy Spirit. There, what's that word the theologians invented starting with a T? Trinity. And we sometimes find it very hard to put that into, into speech. I mean, come on, do you know the rest of the creed? You know, I heard it sung over here one year. We believe in God, the Father, maker of the heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, our Saviour. What? Hey, do you realise how hard it is to say the truth of Genesis 1 and John 1 together? Because Jesus is God and God is Father, but Jesus is not Father, Jesus is Son. And it's the Son who was appointed by the Father to create all things by him and for him. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own didn't listen. And so he came to us. Not too many Jews here tonight, are there? I'm not a physical descendant of Abraham. I'm glad I'm a spiritual descendant through Christ. Now, let's, let's try and tie this together here a bit for you. The first miracle, when Jesus walked on the planet, I've already mentioned, he went to a wedding in Cana. What did he do? Turned water into wine. Very good. How did he do it? He just spoke. He didn't drop anything in. He didn't spit into it. He just said, take the water outside and serve it. Now, if you were the host of the party and you tasted it because we know what the host said, this is better than anything we've had. Where have you been keeping it? Um, where'd you get it from? And the servant said, hey, we've got this bloke out the back who talks to water. I, I think you would have shut up, wouldn't you? It's just beyond your comprehension. But that's what he did. In the beginning was the word, and he spoke. And on day one, the world was created covered with water. He always had enough water to cover the world at Noah's flood because it was created that way. And he always was going to use a picture of the ark as a way, means of saving people from his judgment. Remember, he didn't want to kill anybody. He, Noah was told, anybody who wants to can come. How sad. Do you realise Noah's granddad, Methuselah, knew Adam? Noah's father, Lamech, was a godly man. And Noah had at least two brothers and two sisters and not one of them got on the ark. And you think your family with some unbelievers is unusual? No, right from Adam up to the present through Noah, this has been sadly a norm. Because whether we like it or not, you don't inherit faith. 
Uh, doesn't the Bible say every one of us has to come to Christ and submit? It, it, it's sort of almost a mystery. It'd be far easier to say, oh, Lord, I would love my kids to be born Christians. No, because every one of us has to repent and believe and accept the gospel. Serve the God of our fathers. You see, don't be surprised Jesus was so good at water. In Genesis 1, he created the world covered with water. In Genesis 1.9, he commanded the dry land to come up out from under the water. Hmm. In Genesis 7, he commanded the water to come back again. Or when he added 40 days and 40 nights of rain. He's pretty good with water. Um, Psalm 104, have you read it? It's one of those that the songwriters love. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. There's a few of them like that. But by the time you get to verse 5 and 8, you know this is about the creator. You know this is about the creator who spoke. And it says, at your voice that thundered, the waters fled away. I always thought of God as saying, come on, water. No, no, no. On the, on, on the second day of creation, on the third day of creation, when he spoke, his voice was like thunder. Retreat. Hmm. I can tell by the looks on your faces, some of you never thought about what was involved in that. How, if you were to sort of fly around the world, how many kilometres, how many miles would you fly? About 24,000 miles, 40,000 kilometres or so. And by the middle of the third day, there's dry land up and the water has fled. Hey, there's dry land up. Do you realise even if it only went halfway, that water has moved 12,000 miles in less than 12 hours? Can you imagine that? That's power. I mean, don't you remember one of your famous kings who was trying to prove that kings are not gods and he sat on the edge of the beach and he said, I'll show you. Tide, go out. Tide, stop. And didn't do anything as he said. You're no good with water, are you? I mean, glass, empty. No, no, you can't just say it. You have to do it. Oh, no wonder he's so good with wine and with storms. You do believe he's good with storms, don't you? Because wasn't he fast asleep in a boat? And didn't a storm come along? And the disciples got all petrified. And he said, oh, you foolish people, you people lacking faith. And he stood up and he said, stop. Do you realise he's still in charge of the weather? No matter what the BBC, the ABC, National Geographic, or all of your false climate forecasters say? You know, when we go to Haverford West, we've got a couple of days on climate, haven't we? Because apparently in Wales, there's a climate emergency that's been declared. And as I love to tell people, the Lord's Prayer is part of our problem. I mean, we used to pray this even in our parliaments and our, our public schools and that, and it's a climate control prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Remember I mentioned it last night? Daily bread, bread from flour, flour from wheat, wheat from the farmer, and only grows if it rains. You don't pray to the Lord for the climate, and sorry, if you don't ask, you don't get. It's in my power to grant this. Hmm. Well, I promised you last night, and we'll see if we can make this work. Um, here's our new kids' book. There's Joseph. See him there? A little bit too Celtic red. There's my grandson, Josh. There's my granddaughter, Lucy. There's Grandpa John. Oh, I hate to tell you this, but I, I know Joseph was really young when he came here, but i am actually gotten older since I was here last. And I was recently in a, in a school. They had went from grade one through to year 12, and they asked me to deal with the grade ones. I love that because you can muck around and play with bones and all of that. And uh, anyway, they asked me to deal with dinosaurs. 
So I dealt with dinosaurs. We had great fun, dinosaur teeth and dinosaur bones. And at the end, a little girl put her hand up and said, were you here when the dinosaurs were here? <laughs> you know, I was waiting for the other kids to laugh. The Tiltons are covering their mouths, trying not to laugh. But the other kids just wide-eyed waiting for the answer. <laughs> you rotten sods, you, right? Anyway, we wrote this book, great little book. And your kids need to know not only that Jesus made them, they need to know what happened to them. And in this last year, we've added integrative technology to our books. Uh, we visit Jurassic Ark. Welcome to Jurassic Ark. Please keep your seatbelt on at all times in a moving vehicle. And do not feed the fossils. Now, that's only a small part of what it does, and the kids love it. You can't download it onto your phone, so we don't want kids stuck on phones, but we do want them to actually learn to use books in a modern, integrated world, and that's how this system is designed. It works on any smartphone, any computerised uh, iPad, any iPhone or anything like that. Okay, the kids need to know God made the dinosaurs. For all things were made by Jesus Christ, and they were made for him. Hmm. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Let's sort of try and look at that. Five minutes too. Can I do this in ten minutes? God took six days to make the universe. Can I talk all about it in ten minutes? Let's see how we go. Um, where do you find that verse? Exodus chapter 20. What's the importance of it? Well, there's where we're going to try and end. Is it going to take six days, one day, or no day at all to remake the heavens and the earth? What's the connection here? Uh, is he going to remake the heavens and the earth in the twinkling of an eye? It doesn't mention a time over there in Genesis in terms of days. It definitely mentions six days back in Exodus, and it definitely mentions six days in Genesis, and one of them was patterned to be the first day of the week on which Jesus was rising from the dead. Why take six days? All right, let's try and give you a little bit of a look in. This is known as the Ten Commandments. I'm going to join some dots. By the time we get to Genesis 1 and the last couple of verses, God saw everything he made. It was good. God blessed the seventh day and he rested in, in it from the work which he had done. Let's follow through some scriptures. By the time we get to Exodus, history becomes law. Principle number one, no law anywhere becomes law except it's based on history. You have to think it through. Unless you have a historical precedent, you never have a law. That's what Adolf Hitler did. If I can change what people believe about the history of Germany, I can change the law. I can change the future. That's what the communists have done. That's what the humanists in the government here know. If we can change the history of sex, we can allow gays, we can allow LGBT, we can allow all that sort of stuff. As Joseph said, this is the only law ever given with a reason. Do you realise they knew that you shouldn't murder? They knew there was a penalty? Because who was their leader? Wasn't it Moses? Now Moses was not an innocent person. Hadn't he murdered somebody? Wasn't the penalty death? They didn't need to explain this. Moses, their leader, had already experienced this. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, etc., etc. Therefore, he hallowed it. Uh, have you ever tried to prove that Adam kept a Sabbath? You see, on the seventh day when God rested, Adam was one day old. 
He hadn't even been here six days yet. He wasn't even tired. Interesting to ponder through. What about Noah? Any clue that he knew about this? As much as we like to say, oh, yes, no, 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 there actually isn't. It's interesting when you have a look at the debates occurring between the Jews and the Christians in the second and third century, this was a key issue. This Sabbath was given a particular reason. But what comes out of this is Exodus chapter 20 tells you what God did. He created. It tells you who he is. Did you notice it said, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth? It didn't say in six days God made the heavens and the earth. God is not a name. Lord is. Out of respect for the Hebrew, you know the old Jews were too scared to pronounce the name of Yahweh? They left it as four Hebrew symbols. And that's what we've done in English too. We just brought it across as the word Lord. But it reads either Adonai or it leads, uh, reads as Yahweh a proper name. It tells you who God is. His name is Yahweh. And it tells you about the working week. What happened if you didn't keep this rule? You'll work for six days, but whoever does any work on the Sabbath will surely be put to death. Hmm. Secondly, the children of Israel will keep the Sabbath. Notice the last verse. It's a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. You know, when I talk to Seventh-day Adventists and some legalistic brethren, they want to make this a law for everybody when God himself said, no, this is a law between me and the children of Israel. Now, unless you're a child of Israel, physically, then this convention here is not applied to you. Uh, notice again the reason given. For I made the heavens and the earth in six days, on the seventh day rested and was refreshed. In the Old Testament, sin was breaking the law and the penalty of sin was? You know what the penalty of sin was? Good, death. New Testament, what's sin? Whoever commits sin breaks the law. It's lawless. And in the New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Oh, good, you've got it. Uh, can, can you actually connect the dots here? For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law in the Old Testament said the wages of sin is death. The New Testament, the wages of sin is death. Are you connecting the dots yet? I say that because the Muslim will tell you the God of the Old Testament, you Christians have got the wrong God. No, no, no. The law is actually harder. In the Old Testament, you just had to try and physically keep six days. Now if you even hate your neighbour and you haven't killed him, you are just as guilty of murder. Wow. Your six-day doctrines, who what God is, who God is, the working week, what sin is, do you realise only the Creator has the right to tell you what's wrong? And any church that doesn't deal with Genesis not only finds it hard to deal with Revelation, they find it absolutely impossible to deal with the morality in between. Hmm. They can't figure out, is it right to be gay, wrong to be gay? Is that just a rule for the Old Testament? What's actually happening here? Okay, here's the crunch. What? Oh, I've got three minutes to try and do this before we have question time. How would you recognise a saviour? You see, if you're a sinner, you need a saviour, but who's up for grabs? How would you recognise someone who qualified to be a saviour? Because didn't he come first to the people of Israel? So here's how they recognise him. Isn't there t prophecies about, hey, he'd be buried in the grave of a rich man? Yeah, but you weren't there. Uh, I'm sure there were plenty of rich men. He didn't have any broken bones, remember that? This is a fulfilment of prophecy, but you weren't there either. The Jews were. 
They want it in Bury as quick as possible. Here's one that can apply because this is being used against Christians in England today. The Muslims call Muhammad the prophet because they say he's the fulfillment of this Bible verse. As I said, they're undermining the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and everywhere in between, and you need to know how to deal with them. Deuteronomy 18, look for a prophet just like me from amongst your brothers. Now, any Muslim who says Muhammad is the prophet, ask them where they're getting it from and then ask them, oh, so Muhammad was a Jew, was he? No, no, no. Muhammad was not a Jew. Oh, and do you remember Jesus Christ? He was born of the line of David. Not only that, didn't he go to Egypt and come back so that a son would come out of Egypt as a prophecy goes? Question, did Muhammad ever go to Egypt? Nope. It pays for you to know how you'd recognise a saviour because they're saying there is none. And you Christians are saying there is one. Hmm. Did you know Moses actually offered to die on behalf of the people? Most people have read it but never noticed it. Moses is up on the mountain. He's been told the people are rebelling. He's heartbroken. He's only left them a little while ago. Now they're building gold statues to pagan bull gods and things. And he says, Lord, I know you're angry, but don't blame them. Take my life. Would you be willing to do that? What a leader. Sad thing, though, Moses' offer was rejected. He'd already murdered somebody. He'd broken the Ten Commandments. God's already... I mean, didn't he go down and smash the tablet? The only guy who broke Ten Commandments in one day. Right? So what you find is Moses was already guilty. He deserved death. His offer was rejected. Who could pay the wages of sin? Only a sinless man. Correct? Yep, only one qualifies. But how do you know? Answer, Jesus didn't sin. How do you know? If sin is breaking the law, then you have to ask, how did the Jews try to trap him? Remember they did? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? What about divorce? What if a man married a, a wife and, you know, six of them, etc.? Hmm. Communist accusation is none of those. He picked corn on the Sabbath. He healed the man's withered hand on the Sabbath. He healed the crippled man on the Sabbath. And when he was challenged, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus because he's done these things on the seventh day when you are supposed to be resting. You know, Jesus, I mean, I wouldn't, you know how good he was at debating? Now, some people think I'm pretty reasonable at debating. Jesus was out of this world in terms of a debater. He would just turn it around and said, hey, guys, don't you realise my father has been working until now and so have I? In six days, God created. But then he rested from his creating. He didn't rest from the other things he was doing because one of the works he has, the whole world is sustained by the power of his word. Hey, if you want to hold up the planet with your words, you are working. If you want to keep everything existing and if you forget to speak it into so, it's going to stop. Doesn't the Bible say with the power of his word, he can just speak it and it disappears? Yep. Hey, guys, you don't understand what work actually is. They had a whole heap of rules that were false rules. Same as some Christians. Oh, pool is played in hotels. Pool must be wrong. Pool's a good game. Yes, it shouldn't be paid over there and gambled on, but in reality, this rule has nothing to do with where it's actually occurring. Therefore, the Jews sought to kill him because he made himself equal with God. 
Now, they'd reached the right conclusion. He certainly had made himself equal with God, but they forgot to ask, is he right? Yes, he was right. And he is the creator. He was the creator. Do you realise the law was given to prove who was a sinner and who wasn't? I know there are some Christians who think you can actually keep the law. Go for it. Do you realise Paul says, the law killed me and I was a better Jew, a better Israelite than everybody else. You know, when I first became a Christian, that would have been the, hey, here's some rules. I'm going to try and keep seven out of ten, seven and a quarter, eight, eight, I've got to eight. Oh, I blew it again. Do you realise we had a big flood in our town and we had to cancel church and work all day like Trojans? But then so did Joshua when he marched around the city for seven days, not for six. Amazing. Hmm. Did Jesus ever break the law? Nope. He kept the law alive and he kept it dead because he rested on the seventh day. Are you beginning to join the dots here? Have you figured out how long he's going to take to remake the heavens and the earth? I mean, let me just grab you right up here again so you can see. Number one, Jesus said, if you believe Moses, you believe me. Number two, when you look at the last couple of bits of the Bible, there it is there. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and first earth had passed away and there was no more, see, and no more curse. Do you know why he made the world in six days and rest on the seventh? so that you and I and the Jews would have a way of recognising somebody who never broke one of God's laws and was absolutely without sin. Hmm. Question. Since he's dealt with sin, does he ever have to make the world in six days again? Uh, I can see some of you are struggling with this because here's what you and I do. If God has done all this and he's planned it all the way through, surely we're just puppets. And some people go to this logical conclusion. Another say, I can't accept that because the same God says, come, let's reason together. I've got to use my brains. And through Joshua, he said, hey, choose this day. How can that be true? This must be true. No, they're all true. It's just that you and I aren't God and we can't figure that bit out. Can I encourage you, don't hold one bit to the exclusion of the other. If the Bible says they're both there, then they're both true. And don't forget that you're told to go out and challenge people. Hey, repent and believe. Hey, give yourself to Christ. Hey, make sure you choose this day who you will serve. Now, you can't convert them, as I said last night, but you are commanded that your obligation is to go and tell them about this wonderful God who was prepared to be sacrificed even before the foundation of the world. And everything was made by him and everything was made for him. Can I encourage you? See us downstairs. Tea and coffee are free. Biscuits left over from last night are free too. And and conversation is free down there, but the books aren't. Joseph, do you have your fancy credit card? Oh, that was spectacular, that thing that he's got down there now because the church has got Wi-Fi. Well, listen, I I, I took five minutes too long, but we still got a few moments for questions, correct, sir? Joseph, come and join me. Okay, your chance. And if you know anybody in Scotland who wants ministry, this is the man to talk to. And I think we've stunned them into silence. Oh, yeah. yeah, we absolutely stunned them after two nights. Where did all the water go well, after the flood? Still there, is the simple answer. Um, you'll notice at the end of the flood, uh, God gives two commandments in order to clear the land. The first thing he does is he sends a wind to blow over the face of the waters and to move the waters. And the second thing and the most important thing he does is he causes the land to rise up out of the sea. 
Um, and you can see the evidence of that all around here, particularly uh, down on the south coast of, uh, of Britain, where you've got some of the softer rock, where you can physically see where the water has rushed off the land and gone back into the sea uh, as the land has been rising up. It's a huge, great big sort of, we call them dry valleys today, and all you know, different shapes of the topography. Um, but the water is still there. It's just uh, the land has been raised up out of it, the same way that it had in the beginning, because the earth was created, covered in water, and on day three, God caused the land to rise up out of the water, the same way that he did at the end of the flood. Um, in fact, if you leveled the earth today, you know, it's up and down all over the place. If you leveled the earth's crust, uh, the earth would be very, very covered in water. So it's, it's, it's still there. Um, the fountains of the deep were turned off and the earth was risen, the, the crust was sort of brought up out of the water um, at the end of the flood. I think we've exhausted them, Brother David. They can talk to us downstairs. We had lots more questions downstairs than we had last night. That's great. We don't mind that at all. Brother Dave, over to you. Thank you, Father, again for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you that we can again be informed. But again, our cry is information without application, without it changing our lives, Lord, means nothing. So we pray tonight, as we've heard your word expounded and explained, we pray tonight you will make it real to us. You make yourself real to us. Lord, we, we, we look around and see this great, awesome God of creation. We don't just know about you, we want to know you. You invite us. Lord, the first call was, where are you? Where are you? And we pray tonight we will understand that. We will call on you and invite you to make yourself real to us. Bless us, we pray. Make your face to shine upon us. Lift up your countenance upon us. You have blessing, you have peace. Bless John and Joseph as they go on. And this next few months, Lord, you will bless them in their ministry, we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. To find out more about our church, visit www.oakdalechristiancentre.org.